0: traveling
2: in the world of my creation,
0: what we'll see
2: will defy
0: explanation.
3: Hello little kittens, and welcome to another chatting tonight. Tonight, I'm going to get here. Just go with it. We're gonna see if we can't see some glaring parallels between the doomed Firefest and what's happening today with a certain <clears throat> ideology. One caveat to this episode is I came up with the idea while completely stoned and at the time it really seemed to have some uh, meat on the wing if you know what I'm saying. But listen, let's just do it and get all into our feelings, shall we? Before we, like, really get into it and I start, like, playing the clips and stuff like that, I just want to make sure you guys are, like, on my level, okay? And that uh, you get where I'm going with this whole theory that I've made up from watching the documentaries. But it, it, anyway, so Billy McFarland and the Fire Festival represent the trans-slash-gender ideology movement as a whole. Ja Rule is just, he's Ja Rule, man. You know, he's my personal EF Hutton my financial guru, my business mentor, and also the sort of underlying greed that kind of represents this movement. The celebrities and influencers are the celebrity and influencers that push this movement. And in essence, they can also be the corporations and the organizations like ESG and HRC. The media company Fuck Jerry is, of course, the media. And the people going to the concert are your progressives, your TRAs, millennials, Gen Zers, and your garden-variety bandwagoner losers. The critics of the festival are the critics of the movement. And you could even, like, make Billy's original company, Magnesis, the original LGB movement because... Let's all remember that a cause needs money. And so when the cause is accomplished, if you will, meaning that, you know, gay people are afforded the same rights as everybody else they can get married, blah, 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 insurance, all of that stuff. So basically, in essence, all right, that movement has been accomplished. So you need more money. So you attach that whole... Uh, Q T I whatever that the rest of the alphabet that's on there now, and of course I am absolutely aware that a lot of L G B uh, individuals don't want the extra letters attached to their movement. I'm not uh, unsympathetic to that. I get that. My point is is that it is attached to that movement. And if you want to even take it deeper, guys, we can say that the Bahamas and the Bahamians can be the people that are hurt by this movement, if you will. So what was Fire Festival? And, like, how did so many people get sucked into believing that it was going to be all that that, that promised, you know? This fantasy... Of what could be and how it sounds in its promises, okay, its pie in the sky promises, so similar to this movement. Let's take a listen.
4: basement and you pull out your phone which you look at a hundred times an hour. The actual experience exceeds all expectations. You see a music festival that exceeds all expectations on a deserted island owned by Pablo Escobar. There was music, private planes and beautiful women swimming on an island with drugs. Man, that's about as sexy as it gets. And then you see these wonderful, beautiful people in places that you're not, doing things that you can't afford to do. It really didn't matter that these guys may be waifs, trustafarians, and this guy hosting this party was an obvious fraud, because many of these influencers are people that you follow, that you aspire to be. And also this rapper, whose music that you listen to, So when an opportunity presents itself to get out of your parents' basement and go be part of something that's culturally relevant, you're going
5: to absolutely jump at that. (laughs) This tapped into all of the biggest millennial trends.
6: Wow. (laughs) Never been so happy in my life (laughs) 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 to see... (laughs) (laughs) This group of bozos. It's like history in the making. I mean, everyone's supposed to be here, like Bella Hadid, Kendall
7: Jenner.
0: Fire Festival was supposed to be the new Coachella,
8: the new Burning Man, whatever. The whole thing is wrapped in sex appeal. It's in the Bahamas on a private island with a million dollar treasure hunt giveaway.
6: There was swimming with pigs and cuisine, unlike anything you've
8: ever had. It was gonna be an immersive experience, bordering on impossible. Exclusivity with unbelievable access to premier talent.
9: Kanye was gonna be performing at this festival. People spent tens of thousands of dollars on tickets.
6: On your seats,
9: in their upright position. We were
6: all packed into a yellow school bus. And people are thinking, what's
5: the worst thing that could possibly happen? What's happening There's no water over here! Oh, Jesus.
10: Who was playing and what the food was going to be and all the things that typically sell a music festival wasn't the sales point. This was like selling a dream, selling a vacation, selling a concept. We knew that there was a place and we knew that there was an idea of having a, a music festival. And that was pretty much it thought that this was one of the new hot things that was starting to take over the American and global market. So now, you know, we hope everybody comes and enjoys the cultural experience of the decade. Wow, of
3: All right. So like you you get where I'm going with this, you know? These promises, you know, he Own utopia type vibe, no accountability, you know, look, you're equal with like all these celebrities and influencers. And to me, it sounds a lot like this ideology. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into it because I presume you, like me, have a general knowledge that you've never wanted, but now you have. And There are also far smarter individuals than I that can explain it much better. So I will leave it up to their eloquent voices to do just that. And speaking of, let's take a few minutes and listen to James Lindsay uh, speaking on what this ideology is all about, like where it stems from, etc.
11: It's all about just figuring out what the special kind of property is that they identify. Okay, so now we go a little further into the gender theory and queer theory department. Queer theory is a war upon the normal. The definition of queer is identity without an essence, or that which resists being normalized. So the special kind of property in queer theory, or gender theory broadly, which by the way came out of this feminism, to separate sex roles. Feminists started to argue that gender is where the roles really lie. If you're a woman, you're supposed to act womanly, and so sex roles are assigned, but they're attached to what it means to be feminism feminine feminine which is a gender assignment and so gender is socially constructed in order to keep women down the gender construction itself by the way is part of the ideology of patriarchy men are supposed to be this way women are supposed to be that way that's the ideology men deserve society because of this women need to stay in the home because of that that's the ideology so the social construction of gender goes even further in queer theory and it becomes a social construction of sex gender sexuality and virtually everything else including mental health status and so on Fat status and ability status as well, but we'll get to those. And so, what we now have with queer theory, like I said, this is very simple. There's a special kind of property called being normal. Normalcy, fitting within the broad norms of society how you should dress, how you should act, what it means to act as a man or a woman, what genders are, that there are two, not many, not hundreds that men tend to be attracted to women, that men tend to identify as male, that women tend to identify as female and tend to be attracted to men. This creates a broad, sweeping ideology that justifies why some people are normal and get full access to society and others are considered abnormal and are excluded from full access to society, often by being labeled as mentally ill. That's called cis-heteronormativity, and sometimes it's cisheteropatriarchy if they want to add in the feminism that they're now getting away from because feminism intrinsically maintains a sex binary which is a problem which by the way is where we saw with Yuri Beznamov saying that he was the that, that stupid useful idiot leftists are going to get put against the wall and shot as soon as a revolution proceeds past them because they're no longer useful but are in fact dangerous this is why you see the queer trans etc ideology throwing women under the bus this is why Leah Thomas is being upheld as as this massive success story while she just he did destroys women's sports. This is why uh, we have to put pronouns on everything. This is why. And it's too late. The feminists can't get it back. They went into social constructivism and they don't have a tool to get it back. They tried to base... Their argument on something that is a slippery slope, which is social constructivism. If they try to say social constructions end at gender and don't extend to sex, like Judith Butler suggested that they do, then they're trying to uphold the status quo of a sex binary, and they're conservative, in fact, counter-revolutionary. And so now the revolution is turned upon them, and women more broadly, and has lined them up against the ideological wall and shot them. And that's why feminism doesn't matter anymore, because queer theory took it over. So there's this property called normalcy being normal it creates a superstructure of the normal in society the acceptable and then there's the unacceptable abnormal that's the infrastructure they're in dialectical interplay this causes trauma and harm and all of these things and it's put together by an ideology of heteronormativity that it is normal thus correct because there's a pun on statistical normalcy versus uh, moral normalcy being played here that it is normal, thus correct, to be cisgender, as they say, which means that if you're a man, you think you're a man. If you're a woman, you think you're a woman. And then to be heterosexual, because statistically speaking, the very large proportion of people fall into both of those categories. And so you have the exact same Marxist dynamic, And the goal is that the abnormal will now seize the means of the production of normalcy. This is why you hear Douglas Murray talking about homonormativity being the goal to make homosexuality normal and heterosexuality abnormal, to make trans normal and cis, if you will, because that is not a real thing. Uh, Abnormal, because they're going to seize the means of the production of normalcy and overturn it and force an equitable situation where the abnormal is the normal until that becomes what everybody accepts, at which point we'll finally have sex, gender, and sexual justice. The LGBTQ+, or whatever agenda you want to call this. All right. So now we have queer theory is sex... Gender and sexuality marxism that's all it is
3: as always, links will be provided for your convenience and your curiosity. so now let's take a listen as to why and how so many people got caught up in this fire festival experience and like are caught up in this current movement, and I am pretty much barring. Gen Xers and boomers from this unless they're like, you know, like the last vestige of a hippie, you know, if you know what I mean. So how did all these people get sucked into what is the equivalent of just like this exquisite glossy ad or as Billy McFarlane so profoundly put it, you know, selling a pipe dream to your average loser. And then uh, I'm going to have James come in afterwards into the studio (laughs) to just expand on that a little bit more. So let's, let's take a listen as to sort of the explanation of millennials. And in this case, also, we're going to throw your Gen Zers in there too, as well. Here we go.
4: I hate to speak on behalf of millennials because there's nothing worse than a millennial speaking on behalf of millennials.
3: I'm sorry, who are you again?
5: The Millennials. Some of the stereotypes about Millennials are true.
2: Taking a break
5: from social media. We are obsessed with our phones. (laughs) We are a little bit narcissistic.
12: I think that I may be
7: the voice of my generation.
5: A little bit arrogant as a generation, I guess you could say. But certainly our generation loves to
4: be a part of the hype. We identify ourselves with what we're attached to, or who's involved, or who follows us, or who likes us, or who comments. Do I have a blue check mark? Am I trending at the right event? You're either tagged in posts, or you're sharing memes, or you're sending videos that everyone can relate to and laugh, like Star Wars Kids, or Dramatic Gopher, or Antoine Dodson. You see what everyone else is doing. The fact that you're not there creates this fear that you're less of an individual. I think the world's always been where there's always somebody smarter, more
5: successful, better looking, taller, whatever than you. But people didn't see it as much as they're exposed to it now. They weren't in your face all day long. And that's what drives a lot of these things. It's tapping into FOMO, fear of missing out, which is kind of a core thing for millennials. If I missed out on chili and cheese, I'd have a bad case of FOMO.
9: FOMO, fear of missing out. So you're like a millennial. FOMO is something that was invented by the social media paradigm. It's this underlying anxiety where if you don't continue to escalate your visibility, your identity will start to crumble in pieces.
7: Millennials are spending around two hours plus a day on social media.
9: Every day, I start by hitting up Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram.
7: If you're not relevant in social media, if you're not talked about, you don't exist instagram social media marketing influencer marketing is the most impactful form of marketing for an entire generation so an influencer is anyone with a social following there are plenty of people who are models and celebrities that have influence like kendall jenner hailey baldwin bella hadid we call them macros but those are celebrity influencers
9: What an influencer is, is is someone who's effectively monetized their identity. That is their work. The performance of an attractive life. That is their job.
5: Everybody is now an influencer in a certain sense. Everybody is a brand.
13: When you say my brand, what do you mean by
5: that? Um, When I say my brand, um,
6: I just mean kind of like the lifestyle that I want to live. So, positivity... um,
7: health, wellness, and honestly just like positivity.
2: Fire Festival and it was going to be really expensive villas, private yacht rides, exclusive dinners with artists. This utopian concept that's about culture and art and music. That kind of festival culture that we can create our own society here temporarily it started with Woodstock and Monterey Pop. This is our generation, man. We're all together, man. It's cool. <laughs> Fast forward to the 80s and Live Aid. And then in the 90s, Perry Farrell launched Lollapalooza. And there was Burning Man. But in 1999, Golden Voice launched Coachella. There was no VIP area. There was no glamping. It was a sight in the desert and hot dogs and porta potties That's really the start of the modern festival movement in North America. But now Coachella is a $100 million, almost high-end luxury event. It seems like, you know, only the very wealthy can afford to really have a comfortable
9: experience. Coachella is about putting on your deeply inappropriate feather headdress and, like, posing in front of the Ferris wheel. Like, I've got money, I've got tons of friends, I'm, like, young and attractive and carefree, and the music festival is a great place to display that. And there are a lot of people in the millennial generation that are interested in experiences that are effectively, like, pretext for really good Instagrams.
4: And so people are dying to be a part of something that was going to be the the woodstock of the millennial generation. Them partying with
10: talent that didn't really know what they were there to do. But in the end, it didn't matter. We're selling a pipe dream. They were
2: selling a pipe dream to, pipe dream to fucking
8: you know, American America.
10: They were selling a vision of what people want.
11: With the idea, there's this long history, though, of Marxists playing around with the idea of uh, sexualizing. The population, sexual liberation, sexualizing women and sexualizing children in order to destabilize them, in order to get the revolution, to get them to be so agitated and so stuck in their ways of, uh, so stuck in their, their feeling that they're being held back from who they could really be and what they could really have in life uh, by the morality of the era so that they'll throw off their old values, they'll throw off their old culture and adopt a whole new one that's promising them everything that they want, the so-called Garden of Eden. Um, that we could get back into. And the point is to destabilize kids. That's what the sexual, the queer Marxist grooming part is for. It is a war on stability. If we go back to the 1960s, we see what the critical Marxists were writing about. What they realized was that there were these various forces, in particular advanced capitalism, that were causing people to become stable. The working class had become stable. They complained about the working class becoming stable and saying, we need a new working class. Who's the the they? Herbert Marcuse says that explicitly throughout the S.N. Liberation explicitly over and over again he says it in repressive tolerance in 1965 obliquely he says it in one-dimensional man in 1964 a book that sold hundreds of thousands of copies even in the 1960s he says it over and over and over again the working class has been made stable max horkheimer another critical marxist of huge significance says it too The capitalism doesn't immiserate the worker, it gives them a good life, it makes them stable. These guys realized that when you have stability, you have people who want to keep the stable life that they have, so they become conservative. In other words, they specifically become counter-revolutionary, and that is what they have to break down. When we progress forward into the queer Marxist age, post-1984, when Thinking Sex was written, what we realize is that, well, Maybe they can't overcome this economic stability problem so well, but they can overcome psychological stability. So you have to prevent people from being psychologically stable. You have to keep them constantly on their toes. You have to hit them kind of with psyops after psyops. But if you can make sure the children are never stabilized, they're always ready to go do political activism because they think they live in a world they can't cope with. And the only thing that they know how to do to deal with the world they can't cope with is, as the saying goes, scream at the sky. We all saw the... Trump election and people falling on their knees and literally yelling at the sky or showing up and doing political activism or showing up by the millions in Communist organized marches that look like they weren't communist organized marches like the women's March the so-called science March All they know to do is show up when George Floyd dies and start throwing bricks at buildings changing their social media profile bullying anybody who doesn't go along cutting off their family ties specifically around that incident and others that's the goal is to make sure there is no psychological stability so they talk a lot about we talk like i said earlier we talk a lot about physical harm we have to pay attention to the irreparable mental and emotional harm we're doing to our children as well we're talking personality and disorders being induced that will take years and years and years of therapy if they can ever be resolved to be resolved So we're destabilizing children, waging a relentless war on stability. That's one of their goals with this sexualizing children agenda. Secondly, we are severing relationships with the family so that they don't, and even with friends, so they don't have a grounding outside of the cult. Uh, this is literally a part of the cult transition process, the cult induction process. And thirdly, it is to sever relationships to their religion and prevailing culture so that you can out with the old, in with the new, by getting the whole new generation to want to reset the culture that they live in to something different. And so they target children, childhood innocence, which is a narrative used to protect children from, uh, not all children benefit from it. You have innocence privilege or whatever, not all, t- the, within critical race theory, it's an aspect of white privilege that white kids don't have to grow up thinking about race where everybody else does. That's an aspect of white privilege. It's an aspect of male privilege. You don't have to grow up worrying about what it's like to be a vulnerable woman. It's an aspect of straight privilege to not have to be considered a freak or a weirdo or get bullied for being different or whatever else. So childhood innocence is reserved for some children but not others, and therefore that's an imbalance that has to be made equitable. So let's just make sure that the nobody has childhood innocence as their solution because equity always equalizes downward, never upward. Sales pitch is up. Reality is down every single time. Oh, right right right, 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 right,
3: So now we have a pretty damn good idea of like why so many people fell for this, you know, like why so many people were just so fucking excited to go, you know, because they were going to overthrow society this time. I mean, <laughs> sorry, create their own reality. I mean, (laughs) I mean, go to this seemingly impossible music festival, you know, on their own island where everyone thinks the way that they do. And like, who cares how much this costs because we are going to fulfill every idea of a fantasy, of a utopia, and it's going to be filled with Instagrammable luxury and elites and cuisine and Alcohol and drugs. I mean, this sounds legit, right? And, like, God forbid you might question it, because who could possibly criticize something that is so sumptuously wonderful and, and plausible? I mean, phew, come on. But the skepticism and the criticism did come. The questions did come. And the people questioning the Fire Festival were shut the fuck down in basically the same way they are trying to shut down the critics of this ideology. So let's take a listen to some of the seemingly reasonable questions that people had. Uh, for this festival and then what fuck Jerry and by proxy you know all of the media did in response to that
9: what fire is and, and, and what is bringing to the table I see firefest as this big snowball rolling down scam mountain that has rolled up all of the previous scams into one The rise of social media, the rise of the Silicon Valley ethos, you know, make it up first, sunk up a lot of money. FireFest is all of these things zooming straight at all of our brains, landing straight in all of our Twitter feeds.
4: The cacophony of sound that they were able to create using the influencers and their social media strategy was so overwhelming that not only did very smart financial guys give them money, but like facts... We're just totally ignored based off of the strength of the social media strategy.
7: What Fire Festival did prove is that the power of influence is real, because at the time there was nothing else but influence.
4: While social media was their tool, it was ultimately their downfall.
9: Fire Festival trending along with the hashtag fire Fraud. When I saw the video, my first reaction was
7: confusion. I wasn't sure who was the target market for the Fire Festival. Like. If you go to the festival, will there be Instagram models lounging around to Fiji Grapes? So it was a combination of, like, confusion and excitement.
4: Like, hey, someone has got to stand up and say, this isn't real. And so I created the anonymous Twitter account, uh, Fire Fraud. And I just started posting what I knew to be factual.
0: We would sit in meetings with the fire team and... We advised them to stay away from Twitter because there was like an account that basically called them out. The guy would start talking to other people and connecting dots together in the comments. And I think everyone in the room kind of had like a little thing on their mind like, yeah, you're right, like how is this gonna work? How are 20,000 people getting to this island when you're pitching it as Cessna Plains are what's bringing you there. People are like, someone will figure it out. Like, it's fine. This cliff is really high. If people are drunk, they could just fall into this water. They didn't even think, like, maybe we need a fence. I would say, where's the beach? And they'd be like, oh, the, the beach is five miles away. We'd be like, oh, uh. This could actually be, like, a failure, I think. Could it? Everyone would be like, could it? could it? This is interesting. I take
4: a more active role in investigating everything that was going on with Firefest. And what I realized was that they had rented an area north of Sandals Resort and then effectively photoshopped out the bottom portion of the map to make it look like they were on a deserted island. I thought... The world's got to know what's going on. So I create the now infamous Twitter account, uh, Fire Fraud. I thought, okay, I'm going to put this out there, and people are going to see this, and everyone's going to know it's bogus. And nothing happened. I got maybe two or three clicks uh, on Twitter, and that was it. So I said, all right, we got to hit them a little harder. What we ended up doing was taking a uh, plane down there and photographing the development and what they were working on. One of the things that really struck out to me was that they were erecting these dome tents that were pitched as luxury villas that I realized were leftover hurricane tents from Hurricane Matthew. That is a far stretch from a luxury villa on a
14: deserted island. So this website came out, it was like uh, firek.com. And the site's sole purpose was to destroy this festival. It was getting fed direct information and photos of the site that was totally unfinished. The news that was happening by the day that only pretty senior people in the in the festival knew what was happening. It was almost like WikiLeaks. We were having these confidential
4: meetings, and then things from that meeting were actually getting out word for word.
14: So we knew someone actually in the meeting had been wired up. So we were all called to the war room to have a meeting, and it was basically a witch hunt meeting. It was, if you are the person or people that are sending this information to this website, we will pursue legal action, you will leave this island, you will not get paid, and we will come
7: after you. The guy that put together Fire K was extorting Billy. Billy wanted to take the website down. He said he would only do it if the fire festival started releasing actual photos of the campsites.
8: And I just kept saying to Billy, we need to get the messaging out now that this is not a luxury music festival. People aren't staying on yachts, at least most of them aren't. Many of them are not staying in villas. And if you can get that messaging out now, we'll be able to manage expectations. You know, like, here's the reality.
1: Just do it, and people will make their own decisions on it. But you have got to be honest. Here's what it is. Here's the tents, you know. they're gonna People are going to find out sooner or later. So, like,
14: why are you walking around trying to dodge the inevitable. Deaf ears. We are one day out without enough beds to safely house our staff, our VIP guests, and our paid customers. You need to cancel more guests immediately. And I was basically like, I know that you're worried about a press blowback, but imagine a scenario where 350 people arrive onto a remote island, are herded onto yellow school buses, brought to a festival site that's unfinished and realize they have no place to sleep. And to make it worse, they have no way to get home because we don't have any charter flights booked back for them. I was like, I know you're worried about press, but there is no worse situation than that. And the response, the response was, at least they'll see your smiling face and yoga skills. Because I was supposed to be a yoga instructor for the event. Okay. (laughs) Like, what am I supposed to do? You know, like, I'm, um, all right, sure.
9: 27-year-old Elliot Tabelli makes memes for a living. Fuck Jerry is part of the same ecosystem that produced influencer marketing in the first place. If you want to learn how to dominate
5: social media and how you make money off of it, watch. We come up with campaigns for big brands. We produce the pictures and the videos, we post it to their Instagram, Facebook,
4: or YouTube. Because you've got all of these brands, that are trying to get in on the viral meme game. These big brands don't know how to think like we do.
9: You now have 30 million followers across the entire Jerry Network.
10: The campaign objective is to truly shift mainstream opinion.
5: What's up, fam? He's the CEO. The atmosphere that was cultivated there was that
1: nobody, nobody, no matter what, was able to cross them and tell them No. Quickly that all of the original sketches of the rooms that we had signed up for got taken off of the page. That was sort of when we started trying to dig a little bit more and see, oh, can you send us pictures of the accommodations? You had people asking very legitimate questions on Instagram. They were trying to book
4: flights, trying to understand logistics. We just started getting bombarded with
10: all of these questions. Grant was trying to use our employees for customer service, but that wasn't what we were hired to do. The only thing we could do was to just keep telling people, "Email concierge at fire.com. Email concierge at fire.com," and then we would get another request saying, "Concierge at fire.com didn't respond." But
1: the unanswered questions turned to people criticizing. It was very annoying. I was like, "Well, this is terrible customer service. You know, they they need to know better. They're throwing uh, this luxury festival." And then you'd have Grant reaching out and saying, these comments are killing
10: us. What do we do about all the people that are talking shit? The decision was to screenshot all of the legitimate questions and forward that over to the fire team and then delete all of the negative comments that were degrading the brand.
4: I saw them actively deleting comments and then turning comments off entirely so that you wouldn't have 3,000 people saying, hey, I don't have my flight information. Where do I need to go? They were so good at silencing the dissenters that I'm screaming this from a rooftop and there's no one listening.
0: So there were a few different vendors who dropped out. For everybody, this is a red flag. This is one of those things that you kind of question if they're doing something, why aren't we? But it would always come back to like,
7: If it were my agency and I didn't think this was something I could put my name behind, I would have dropped out.
0: There's so much momentum, so much money, so much force behind everything that it's like, this train's not stopping.
3: And just to bolster my comparison argument, here's a clip from the podcast High Noon with Inez Stepman, and she is with James Esses. And then after that is a clip from Dr. Andre Von Mol. Cherry picker. <laughs> At the time of my expulsion, I was just finishing my third year
15: um, of a five-year degree. And I was just about to set up my own private practice and start seeing paying clients privately, which is all very exciting. Um, While this had been going on, I was becoming more and more concerned about the the political and also the medical landscape in terms of children struggling with their gender identity and suffering from gender dysphoria. I was particularly concerned with the push in the therapeutic world towards affirmation, so affirming, transitioning, medical transitioning. and I was speaking to detransitioners, you know, young women in particular, who have suffered irre- irreversible um, mental and physical harm because of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and sex reassignment surgery. And I thought I need to speak out about this, you know, ethically as a therapist, because we need to ensure that there's explorative therapy open to these young people. And There's been bans around the world, I think, including some some states in the United States around banning conversion therapy, as it's termed. Um, But there's a real fear that this will end up criminalising ethical, explorative therapy for children. So I spoke out about this. I launched a petition to the UK government asking them to safeguard therapy for children. Uh, And basically, off the back of that, yes, one day I received an email from my university course provider telling me that I was expelled with immediate effect. Um, and within a mere matter of minutes, they blocked me from my university email address, my university portal, and then to put the boot in, they went onto Twitter the same evening and publicized the expulsion.
16: Uh, what was the reason that the university gave, um, either in public or to you in private about, I mean, what rule can you possibly have violated uh, that would result in in such a like um, first of all expulsion at all, and second of all, um, you know, with with no sort of chance to appeal? You said they shut down your accounts immediately afterwards. I mean, what what explanation did they give, if any, for those actions?
15: Well, the difficulty is I've never actually had a conversation with anyone at the university, um, and if they're going to take disciplinary action, there's various. Layers that you need to go through various hearings, you know, opportunities to put forward your side of the story, appeals. I I wasn't offered any of that. What what I received was a a two-paragraph email stating that there had been some complaints made about me and what I had been saying in this space, and that I brought them into disrepute. And and that was it. I I, I never was signposted towards any policies. I was never provided with any evidence of what I had done wrong. Eventually, when I got hold of the policies myself. I went through to see, well, you know, what would be the circumstances in which immediate expulsion without appeal uh, would be uh, an appropriate resolution. And the types of offences in the university's handbook that this would be suitable for include physically assaulting or sexually assaulting another student on campus or defrauding the university. So they seem to be suggesting that me speaking out about my concerns about medicalising children is some sort of equivalent to that.
16: Um I mean that's that's obviously I mean we've talked a lot on this podcast for example with Aaron Sebarium about the institutional uh sort of creep of not just gender ideology but let's stick with gender ideology for now since it's most relevant um you know the creep of these ideologies not just into practitioners of um whether that's you know psychology psychiatry uh, psychiatry um and or or just the practice of medicine uh, but into the institutions themselves so into places like your university into um you know sort of board exam i don't know exactly what the equivalent is in the uk but but into um organizations professional organizations that uh, gatekeep with board exams for example um you know is it is it your contention that let me ask you this actually um do you think that there are a bunch of other people who maybe share uh, in that profession share some of your concerns, uh, but are afraid to face the same consequences from the institutions uh, that that you did? Or do you think this really is a kind of bottom-up thing where the vast majority of people in this field, and we always hear about a consensus, right? That, that there is a bottom-up consensus among, um, let's say, therapists in this case on this issue and that you were just very far outside of it.
15: Uh, I think it's a combination. I I, I would say that I've been contacted by many therapists including long-standing therapists in the UK who have said they share my concerns but are too afraid to speak out. I've been contacted by trainee therapists who fear that if they say something they'll also be chucked off their course. Um, And I know that there's some trainee therapists who have actually postponed their course waiting for the outcome of my legal case, which I'm sure we can talk about a bit later. But but even in my own cohort, on my own course, I I had peers who uh, agreed with me on these topics, but just didn't feel able to to speak out openly and say so. So um, I think there is a real fear that's put into people that if they step out of line at all, they'll be given the boot. But uh, I also think that these organizations tend to model what we're seeing in society more generally. I mean, we've seen a real push amongst commercial entities, amongst media organisations, political parties to embrace gender ideology, hook, line and sinker, Um, and we've seen this through subtle changes over a long period of time with language, etc. So I think there's a lot of people nowadays who aren't really that skilled up on exactly what all of these things mean, but they want to demonstrate that they're a nice person. They don't want to offend people unnecessarily. And so they go along with this, not realizing the ramifications.
13: Ben Maul, what are you seeing on the front lines of you know policy when you're out there testifying in state legislatures or international for, as I said, uh, sane standards, laws and regulations? What would you say is the toughest ground? And by that, I mean, the most difficult battles your family doctor engaged in this arena what do you think is most bitterly contested on the medical front um there's, there's two answers to that uh the first problem is me being a board certified family physician uh i know that if i were to go in a court of law the other side's attorneys would gleefully spend hours trying to get my testimony disallowed because i'm a family physician i'm not an expert and they would likely succeed with the average judge which is why I apply myself to other avenues where I can be more effective Um, in more direct answer to your question. And and by the way, if I were a family physician working for the gender clinic, now I'm an expert. (laughs) But you know, you know, the literature better than they do. And the attorneys don't want that in court. So they just get your testimony disallowed. and It's not hard for them to do. More direct answer, you were asking about, okay, what are the roadblocks? The problem is the ideological capture of the medical organizations, um, legislators, media as a whole, uh, um, and uh, you know, um, not just the, the academic world, um, but also, and I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time getting it out of my mouth here. Um, I'm just going to have to let it go. I apologize. So the, these pillars of society have been taken in by the trans ideology, masquerading as science, which it is not. And it's reinforced with emotional blackmail. You have to support this or they're going to kill themselves, which is also not true. But it doesn't matter. And you ask them, how do you back this up? It's like, it's what the experts say. It's what the organizations say. That's not proof. You know, in fact, that's how groupthink and herd mentality work. So all roads lead back to W path. The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which is an American deal. It's not a medical organization.
3: So we've seen how the fire Festival started, you know, the concept. And we've seen what happened when people started to question it. Again, much like when people questioned this movement, shut down. But now let's get to the fun part. The part we're at now, I believe. You know, in reality. The part I'm going to call the yellow school bus cheese sandwich era. We're at the part where everyone is on their way to the festival. On their way to the Bahamas. On their way to paradise. Their own utopia. We're at the part where gender ideology rubber meets the real world road. So does everyone have their boarding pass? Well, let's go babies. In their upright position,
9: thank you very much. All right, we are here in the private jet. It's actually worse than like really, like being like low, low economy
6: (laughs) class. We were all packed into the yellow school bus. This was maybe 10 or 15 minute drive. And right as soon as you get to the entrance. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh. I can't The girl next to me on the bus started bawling crying.
1: There's no bed in that tent. There's no bed in that tent. Everyone's like, this is not (laughs) funny. It
6: was just gravel stacked up along the road.
1: What are we
6: I mean, this is just crazy. There's like 50 tents that are ready, and all the rest aren't. There's plenty of liquor. There's just pallets of liquor bottles sitting next to kiosks that said bar. What's happening? There's no water over here.
1: Oh, Jesus! Maybe we <laughs> all get to burn it down at the end. we just burned all of our money. <laughs>
0: This is not what we signed up for. The first thing I saw was, these are FEMA tents. What have I done? My child is like Satan. This is such a disaster. It, I'm scared. I'd say this is dangerous. It won't change anything because the festival has to happen. It was chaos. At the end, I was like, this shit ain't happening. I'm getting a flight out
2: of
10: here started to have breakdowns people started to have panic attacks no idea what they were doing it was a shit show just chaos and energy uh, it's time to let people in and kind of see how it unfolds
1: festival on the bus the bus driver just knew where to go and he's telling us oh yeah like they didn't start construction on any of this until maybe a month ago or oh yeah like you're you're really in for for something just wait until you see what you're getting yourselves into which is you know very concerning thing to hear when you're on a bus to you have no idea where after taking a plane to god knows what island with who knows what people see this sea of white little tents. There was a disbelief on the bus. A lot of people thought that, oh, you know, maybe we're passing through this area. You know, our villas are just on the other side. And it was the bus driver who said, oh, no, that's where you're staying. It was like, oh. My. God. Look at the beds.
7: Oh, Oh, Jesus. This
1: this festival is never happening again. I hope they know
6: (laughs) that. This is just crazy. There's trucks all over the place, still setting things up. There were Amazon boxes everywhere, and there was a shower, but you couldn't open your mouth because the water's green. Yikes! Oh, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here. You can party like an Instagram model and you know live the life of your dreams, but on the beach everyone was just sort of wrecked and sunburned, and like this is not what I thought was gonna happen. It's an absolute circus. I don't know like, what's going on. People
2: we're like, what did I get myself into?
6: We don't even know what we're three in. Yeah. Tents are blowing away. All of the acts are pulled
14: out. It was a shit show. You know, like, a camp counselor could have done a better job. And it was a constant battle because what they cared most about was the influencers. So I'm imploring them to cancel paying guests at this point. You know, they're not going to have a place to stay. And the response from Billy was, we're not a problems-focused group. We're a solutions-oriented group. We need to have a positive attitude about this. We need to have a good attitude. And he was unflappable, but he was also entirely delusional. So it was this constant battle in in my mind between, is this guy a genius or is he a madman? Because he just would not take no for an answer and he would not take advice. And where do you land now? He's a liar. Then I saw the...
10: The Twitter post, the cheese sandwich, that was when I knew this was, this was done. You remember the New York Times came out with an article that talked about this entire fire festival and they talked about it very matter of fact from an operational perspective. What they didn't talk about, which I think was something that was missed, was a couple of powerful models posting an orange tile is what essentially built this entire festival. And then one kid with probably 400 followers posted a picture of cheese on toast that trended
14: and essentially ripped down the festival. All I know is that people were stoked to watch this thing go down. (laughs) Do you see the luxury food court?
4: Do you see this luxury cheese sandwich? At the same time, Billy's lawyers were issuing cease-and-desist orders to anyone that's actively posting negative comments. They were threatening, we're going to sue you. It wasn't just rich kids trapped on an island to me. At that point, it was also a health concern that there were people literally trapped on an island. This
6: shit is a fucking disaster. My immediate reaction was, we need to get out of here. (laughs)
1: anything you know it's become one of the most talked about dramas on social media glamorous luxurious caribbean island getaway turned disaster quickly spiraling into chaos now the event's co-founder is facing up to 20 years in prison
3: because i know you guys are at my level then i know that you are digging that wear the cheese sandwich okay we are the cheese sandwich in the shitty styrofoam container that brings this air quote festival down because it's a shit show and we know it's a shit show but worse than that we know it's a lie and a con segue time just like billy mcfarland
16: called you a compulsive liar i've
14: been caught a lot of things since the festival so
5: you don't believe you have a compulsion to augment the truth. It's like you're calling me all these crazy things, man. Like, show me one, one thing that I said that's not true. Problem? Show me one thing I said that's not true today. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'll sit here and wait. Okay. Magnesis. Uh, we had over 10,000 paying customers. We have 100,000 customers around
3: the globe. According to former Magnesis employees, Magnesis never had more than 4,000 to 5,000 members.
5: We spent 30 million dollars to execute this festival.
3: But that was not true.
5: We had 250 houses rented. Not true. I spent 5.9 million dollars
3: of my own money. Not true. He lied to investors if fraud, repeated misrepresentation. Literate plan to deceive, fictitious and forged documents, a sham, betrayed and deceived his investors, customers and employees.
10: Okay, I'm going to take a 10-minute break, and I'll come back, and we'll continue. Uh, What's the 10-minute break for
3: him to come
5: up with now? No, I'm taking a personal break.
12: I would not trust a single word that Billy says about his own motivations or about himself, simply because Billy McFarlane is a con artist. I know all about because Billy McFarlane is a con artist. I know all about them. You know, I've researched them. I know they ruin lives. They look into your soul. They see what you're missing, and they take advantage of that. The most surprising thing about con artists is just how normal and likable they are. For a con artist, deception is a constant practice. A con artist would pass a lie detector test with flying colors because there's no tension there. To them, this is the truth. They aren't delusional. They're doing it very deliberately. Billy has been running small cons his entire life. People to trust them. And they have an explanation for everything.
2: He kind of explained me that, you know, at some point I guess he lost the sense of reality.
5: (sighs) Um... Everyone in an era in which you can convince millions of people to do anything just on marketing alone but in its wake it leaves real harm
1: they skated out of town and left everybody high and dry can i curse on you he's a fuck shot he's a fuck shot it was a scam from the beginning because I'm Billy. There are people who
4: help Billy commit fraud so that they can make their money.
3: Oh, you little buttercups. With the sweetest smile. Dear little buttercups, thanks for staying a while. <laughs> we made it through this fire festival <laughs> of an episode. Relatively unscathed and with only a mild sunburn and hangover. I sincerely hope you all enjoyed this deductive argument? argument? My mind it escapes me anyway regarding this dumpster fire that is gender ideology. Because honestly, this fuckshot has no choice but to crash and burn. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen. And as always, I loved chatting tonight with you all. You know, us cheese sandwiches, we need to unite. Shape of cheese sandwich, form of destruction. Before we wrap it up.
7: Let's get shit.
3: Anyway, before we wrap it up, let's do ourselves this little favor, do ourselves a service, if you will, and let's listen to some of my favorite quips, my favorite words of wisdom, the only man who can wax business poetic, the man... The myth, the ex-con, Ja Rule. Take it away, Ja.
2: Uh, you know, it's it's a very unique situation. Whenever you can marry the affluent with the less fortunate, you get the birth child.
7: <laughs> hey, wait, wait. Which
5: is called yeah. hip hop.
7: <laughs> okay, well, this is called hip
5: hop. This is this is called the credit card. Yeah, this is a credit card. So the, the Daily Mail talks about how they're hashtagging Fire Festival, and that Shanina Sheikh says it's lit. I knew it would do that. I knew it would do buzz. If you're constantly gonna be taking pictures it's here, yeah. make
2: sure you fucking Fire Festival fire because it's gonna create a, bu- a small buzz that can be a big buzz, and it's free press. You can't pay for that kind of press. And ask me why I get on the festival. Right now, yes, we are the fucking laughing stock of everything. We are scam fired. But that might not be the case after we fucking put our plan in play and start to the spin.
1: They use Samsung as, a, as an example of how, you know, this is just some bad PR. Um, you know, Samsung's
14: out here blowing people's faces off of cell phones, but they're still selling cell phones, you know. So they're kind of trying to make it seem like we would overcome this. We
2: can't dwell on how we fucked up. We
1: can't dwell on what made it go wrong. We got to on how make it better in the future. The vast majority of us on this phone call were one, not involved with the festival and then were actively told not to be involved. So it was, you know, painful to be honest. We put, you know, a, a big, very talented team put a ton of hours into that software. The reality is that I just believed in the core app that we we're building so much that I think I was blind to a lot of what was kind of going on internally with what we were doing. I mean,
8: it was something that we worked on
2: People on this fucking phone call, man. Let's think of how to dig ourselves out of this shit, man. We didn't kill anybody, nobody got hurt. We made a mistake.
1: We'll get past it. I mean, granted, nobody died, but we did flat out lie to the public about what we we're giving them. I mean, that's fraud. Like, um, and that's not okay, like as a company um, operates.
5: That's not fraud. That's not fraud. That.
2: Is uh,
3: I would call that uh, false advertising. Now, no story regarding the fire festival would be complete without a special mention of the unsung hero of fire, Mr. Andy King, who also has quite possibly one of the best stories, in my opinion, to come out. Of the whole fire festival. I mean, in my opinion, it's a doozy, it's delicious, it's incredible. You won't believe it until you hear it. How's that for a buildup? So, without further ado, let's hear it from Andy King himself.
2: Did Andy ever tell you how he had to get the water out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did Andy tell you about had to get the water
8: out? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was like fucking crazy i'm not going to talk about that (laughs) let me tell you something we had four containers filled four 18-wheeler trucks filled with evian water but i had left the week before for two days to go to meetings in bermuda for the america's cup and when i came back i missed the big meeting with customs and of course customs had said to billy and the gang you need to pay us $175,000 in cash today for us to release the water I went down, well, Billy called me. I'm going to speak completely, Um, you know, this won't go that far, I'm sure, but Billy called and said, Andy, we need you to take one big thing for the team. And I said, oh, my gosh, I've been taking something for the team every day. He said, well, you're our wonderful gay leader, and we need you to go down. Will you suck dick to fix this water problem? And I said, Billy, what? He said, Andy... If you will go down and suck Cunningham's dick, who's the head of customs, and get him to clear all of the containers with water, you will save this festival. And I literally drove home, took a shower, I I, I drank some mouthwash, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really, and I got into my car to drive across the island to take one for the team. And I got to his office fully prepared to suck his dick. But he couldn't have been nicer, and he's like, Andy, listen, I will release all the water, I will let you serve it, but I want to be one of the first people to be paid this import fee for what you're doing. And I said, okay, great. And I got back, and I had all the water that we needed. (laughs) Can you imagine, in my 30 years of a career, that this is what I was going to do? I was going to do that, honestly, to save the festival.
3: Joining us in the studio today is my favorite paperweight, Nora. Nora, say hello to the audience out there. She laughed.
12: Just like my subscribers. (laughs) Hello.